You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I apologize if the sound quality is not quite as sharp as usual these past uh, last month and this month because I'm actually away from home. I am uh, living and working in Suffolk uh, at the moment. And uh, I don't actually have my professional mic set up here, but we'll do our best. My guest today is Kat Rosenfield. And um, welcome back to the podcast, Kat. Thanks so much for having me. Kat is a freelance pop culture and political writer. She is the co-host of the podcast Feminine Chaos uh, with Phoebe Maltz Bovie. And she is the Edgar-nominated author of Amelia Anne is Dead and Gone and Inland. And she's also written for MTV News, Wired, Vulture, Entertainment Weekly, Playboy, Reason, Unheard, The US Spectator, and Arc Digital, among other publications. But not yet for ARIO, something which I hope will to remedy someday. (laughs) (laughs) One of these days when I have a little less on my plate. Yes. Would you like to begin by reading uh, a little excerpt from your novel? Sure. Yeah. So this is uh, my new book, No One Will Miss Her, is a thriller. It's being published by William Morrow tomorrow, actually, October 12th. So we're speaking on October 11th. Congratulations. Sorry that I should have said that that's why I invited you back onto the podcast to talk (laughs) about your new novel. (laughs) And not just because we're such good friends. Um, But yes, you know, so uh, I'm going to read from the very, this is the chapter that opens the book. And um, it's brief. So, you know, just want to reassure listeners that they won't be hearing me endlessly uh, speaking in the voice of this character. Um, and so here we go. All right. My name is Lizzie Willette. And if you're reading this, I'm already dead. Yes, dead, beyond the veil, passed on and gone. A fresh minted angel in the arms of Jesus, if you believe in that sort of thing. A fresh pile of chow for the worms, if you don't. I don't know what I believe. I don't know why I'm surprised. It's just that I don't want to die, or didn't, I guess, especially not like that. There one moment, gone the next, erased, obliterated, with a bang, not a whimper. But like so many things I didn't want, it happened anyway. The funny thing is, some people will say I had it coming. Maybe not in so many words, maybe not quite so out in the open, but give it time. Just wait. One of these days, maybe a month or two down the road, somebody will let it fly. Down at Strangler's in that magic booze-emboldened hour before the neon Budweiser sign clicks off for the night, and they turn on those death glare fluorescents so that the barman can see what a mess everyone made so he can swab down the sticky floor. One of the old-timers will toss back the dregs of his fifth or seventh or seventeenth beer and stand up on unsteady legs and hitch his sagging pants up to that under-the-gut sweet spot and say, it ain't like me to speak ill of the dead, but the hell with it, 
Good riddance to her. And then he'll burp and shamble off into the restroom to splatter a poorly aimed piss everywhere but into the bowl, and with not so much as a meaningful look at the sink on his way out either, even though his hands are crawling with a whole day's worth of dust and grit and grime. The old man, with stains on his pants, dirt under his fingernails, a topographical map of busted capillaries racing over the strawberry bulb of his nose, maybe even a wife at home with a weak old yellowing bruise around her eye from the last time he hit her. Well, he's the salt of the earth, of course, the hometown hero, the beating heart of Copper Falls. And Lizzie Willette, the girl who started her life in a junkyard and ended it less than three decades later in a pine box. I'm the trash that this town should have taken out years ago. And that's how it is in this place. That's how it's always been. And so that's how they'll talk about me once enough time has passed. Once they know I'm cold in the ground or burned to ashes and scattered on the wind. No matter how terribly and tragically I died, old habits die harder. People can only pull their punches so long, especially when it comes to their favorite target, even if the target isn't moving anymore. But that part, that will come later. Right now, folks will be a little bit kinder, a little bit softer, and a little bit careful because death has come to Copper Falls and with death comes outsiders. It wouldn't do to tell the truth, not when you don't know who might be listening. So they'll clasp their hands and shake their heads and say things like, that poor girl was trouble since the day she was born. And there will be real pity in their voices, as if I had any say, as if I conjured trouble from inside the womb so that it was already there, waiting to catch me as I tumbled out, a sticky web that tangled up all around me and never let go. As if the same people who are clucking their tongues right now and sighing over my troubled life couldn't have spared me from so much pain if they'd spared just a little thought, a little grace for their junkyard girl. But they can say what they like. I know the truth, and for once I have no reason not to tell it. Not anymore. Not from where I stand, six feet under, finally at peace. I was no saint in life, but death has a way of making you honest. So here's my message from beyond the grave, the one I want you to remember. Because it will be important. Because I don't want to lie. They all thought I had it coming. They all thought I was better off dead. And the truth, the one I realized in that last horrible moment before the gun went off, is just this. They were right. Thanks very much, Kat. Um, I haven't actually read your two previous novels. Have you written in the genre before? So my first two novels were for young adults, um, which just means that the characters were teenagers. Um, but my first novel was in a similar vein to this. It was a, a murder mystery um, called Amelia Ann is Dead and Gone. My second was a psychological thriller with sort of a light supernatural flavor called Inland. And um, so, you know, I, I'm interested in in suspense and always have been. And so in that sense, you know, those other two books are similar. This one is for adults, so it's different in that sense. It's also, because it's for adults, uh, it's much darker, much grittier. There's a lot more gruesome stuff in here than uh, was allowable when I was writing for teenagers. Mm, Thank you. Um, Are there many, there seems to be a genre that particularly attracts women writers and readers. Do you have any theories as as to why that is? Um, And what is it that that drew you particularly to to the genre of murder mysteries and whodunits? 
That's a good question. I, I couldn't say why it is that this is where my brain likes to go. Um, I think, you know, it's it's something to do with with the way I'm wired and, and what I find entertaining myself. Um, I, I think like a lot of writers, I enjoy writing the types of books that I also like to read. And um, as for the draw of this kind of material for women, you know, it's it's interesting. There's this theory that I'm not sure I find all that persuasive that women are drawn to um, true crime or to fictional books about murder because we're so under the threat of violence day to day in our lives from men um, that, you know, this is a way to kind of titillate yourself with the possibility to titillate yourself with the fear, but in a controllable way. Um, and maybe just sort of take control of it so that it doesn't consume you. But I, I think honestly that the answer is more basic than this. Um, why do women read books about murder? Well, women are, you know, by and large, the the biggest readers of fiction in general. And uh, murder is a great topic. It's exciting. It's interesting. Um, you know, I think that we've always been drawn dating back to Shakespeare to stories in which people off each other. Yeah, I I mean, I don't, I I think that that kind of psychological um, hypothesizing about women's motives uh, for reading fiction doesn't, I mean, it doesn't ring very, very true to me. Um, Or it doesn't, it seems like it's just a rant, it's just a wild guess, isn't it? I'm pretty sure also, I wonder, I mean, I don't know, I wonder how many women actually feel at imminent, uh, imminently threatened with violence on a, from men on a daily basis. Um, I certainly don't. I mean, I'm aware of risks sometimes, um, but I don't feel a constant and imminent sense of threat. I can't even imagine how debilitating that would be. Well, I think that the answer is that it, you know, most women don't feel that way. Um, I think that there's a certain cachet at this point uh, because of of things that exist, you know, in the discourse to claiming that you feel constantly fearful of men. Um, And you, you will see these viral Twitter threads from women who claim that, you know, they, they, don't leave their house after dark or they don't ride public transportation or, you know, if, if only all the men would, would just disappear, you know, imagine the amazing freedom because they constantly curtail their behaviors and their lives out of fear that wherever they go, a man might be present and might do violence to them. Now that's very silly. If you look at the lives these women actually lead, you know, the ones who are writing these viral tweets about how terrified they are, they're, they're clearly leaving their houses. They have jobs, they spend time out in the world and they're interacting with men on a daily basis. And they're not actually afraid that any time they encounter a man that they might legitimately get murdered as a result. But it's, you know, like I said, there's a cachet to being able to say that you feel that way. So I think that that's really what motivates a lot of that. Mm. I was wondering more about, uh, I mean, there is the thing, of course, that women read much more fic- uh, women are the primary readers of fiction and possibly also the primary writers of fiction. Is that is that still true? Do women write more fiction than men? I don't know. That's an interesting question. I wonder. I don't I wonder what the stats are on that. Um and it is a genre that has been 
associated with women and women readers write fiction has, and the novel have been associated with women readers from very early on. Uh, quite a lot of, in the 18th and early 19th centuries, many male writers wrote, actually wrote, chose to write under female pseudonyms or chose to, to sign their novels as by a lady because, because of the kinds of expectations that that would bring of the writing. And I still sort of feel that way in that um, if I see that a murder mystery or whodunit was written by a woman, I'm more likely to, uh, I'm more likely to check it out. I'm more likely to think that it will be well, a well-written, intricately plotted piece. Um, Interesting. Why is that? I think uh, it's just that there is such a um, a strong tradition of women writers within the genre um, that I I'm biased in favor of of, of female writers of of whodunits. In the same way as I think readers in the 18th and 19th centuries when they saw that something had been written by a woman, had particular expectations of the kind of writing it would be, and many readers were attracted to that. That's interesting. So, of course, there were some women who took male pseudonyms, including some very famous women like the Bronte sisters. And there are, there's, there are obvious reasons for wanting to be taken more intellectually seriously and therefore taking a male name as the Brontes and George Eliot did. But if you just wanted to write a novel that was that people would think was an easy page turner of a read, then you chose a you chose a female pseudonym to appeal to that audience. I see. So the idea was that the men were writing the weighty literary, you know, heavy explorations of, of human uh, human affairs, human bondage, and the women were writing the sort of, I guess, what the Edwardian equivalent of the beach reads. Yes, the sort of uh, novel of manners, I think. And I do think there is often a, there is a kind of lineage of connection between that and a whodunit, because in a whodunit, as in the novel of manners, little small interactions between people are important and um, a small details are very telling. Oh, that's true. And a lot of this is about, you know, how did you interpret you, the reader, but also the characters on the page? Um, you know, how did you interpret what this person said or what this person did? And, you know, in many cases, that's where this sort of subterfuge and misdirection comes in. If you're writing a thriller, you rely on the reader thinking one thing, even though another thing is happening. And then that later forms the foundation of, of a reveal and a twist. Yes, yes. Your novel has a couple of very beautiful twists in it, um, which we won't reveal. Um, Thank you. <laughs> and which really rely on ambiguity of lang uh, deliberate ambiguity in, in, in your language, um, deliberate kind of uh, misdirections, um, which are very, are very pleasing when they're resolved. What were your what are your own uh, influences, literary influences? Oh gosh. Um, well, I love there are a few authors I love more than Stephen King. Um, I you know I just I'm fascinated by the way he creates a world and um, but you know but does so accessibly uh, and also by the way he manages to to write tension into scenes. Um, you know it's it's 
just kind of fascinating to, to think that you can be sitting there reading words on a page and feel your heart pounding and feel incredibly nervous because you really want to know what is going to happen. Um, I also am, uh, I love Gillian Flynn, her books, um, especially her ability to write very flawed, but very interesting female characters. Um, she does a, a great job at that and a great job of kind of looking into the, the darkness, um, in women's lives. And I don't mean the threat of violence. I mean more, you know, the depths of manipulation that women are capable of. Um, frequently the women in her books are not just victims or protagonists or heroes, but also the villains. So that's a fascinating thing. Um, but I've, uh, I'm trying to think, you know, in terms of, of writers who inspire me, I, I kind of take inspiration from, Anybody who I think does a, a good job of, you know, constructing, I mean, sometimes it's, it's some cases it's constructing a plot or it's, um, you know, having constructed a character or it's in delving into certain themes, you know, um, for a book like this, where I'm exploring a lot of questions of sort of identity and um, social conflict, Ira Levin is a great example of somebody who does that well and whose work I've, I've looked to, you know, as a template for constructing my own, you know, for kind of pacing out a story like this. But this novel was actually inspired first and foremost by a song, which is an unusual thing for me. Um, I don't know mm -hmm. if you are interested in hearing more about that. Yes. Okay. So there is a song by the Mountain Goats called No Children. It's a song about a horrible divorce and it's sung, narrated by the husband, who describes how, at one point in the song, he describes himself drowning hand in hand with his wife. Um, and he, he pictures them, the two of them out in the ocean, you know, surrounded by water, no sign of land, nothing to cling to but each other. And, and that's sort of a, a metaphor for their marriage, you know, for where they've ended up. They're so toxic to each other that they've destroyed each other, but also all of the relationships that they might've had with other people because everyone is so sick of their bullshit. You know, they're so toxic that they just poison the air around them. So he imagines the two of them drowning together and clinging to each other because, you know, there's nothing else to hold on to. And he says, I hope you die. And I hope we both die. And I was so fascinated by that, you know, just the, the loathing in that, not just for this woman who he feels has destroyed him, but for himself, for having gotten involved in, in this and, you know, for, for what they've created together, this monster that they have jointly become. And um, I, I thought a lot about that song, um, not just the toxic marriage that it depicts, but the imagery in it and the idea of being so desperate to escape from what you've created that, you know, you would be happy to die. And, that line actually makes it into the book in a, a sort of an interesting, I thought, place. Um, you know, I found a way to fit it in as these two characters are talking to each other. But, um, you know, it, I started listening to that song a lot after I realized that it was, you know, sending my brain to interesting places. And maybe three years later, after thinking a lot about how I would build a plot around this idea I had had, I started to write the book. That's fascinating. Do you think that there, I mean, do, do you personally feel that there is a tradition of 
women's writing? And uh, do you feel there's a difference in the way in which women and men approach this particular genre? Or do you think it's it's purely a matter of, of individuals? I think it's more about individuals. Um, I, I, honestly, this is not something that I've ever thought about before. So that may just be, you know, down to the fact that I prefer to think of people as individuals. Um, I've, I've never... I've never thought, especially with thrillers, you know, which are are about human conflict in a way that's kind of genderless. <laughs> my, my, do- my dog says, what? Um, maybe he disagrees. <laughs> maybe he thinks that it's a very gendered exercise. But, um, you know, I, yeah, it's, it's never occurred to me to sort of look at them through that lens. How, what kinds of freedoms do you um, have writing this novel that you didn't have writing the young adult fiction. When you wrote the young adult fiction, did you did you actually feel that there were also some freedoms that you had in that genre that you don't have here? Or is it simply that the adult work gives you, allows for more possibilities? Um, you know, I was writing young adult fiction at a very interesting moment for that type of book. It was, my first book was published in 2012. So I was writing it up through, you know, 2009, 2010. And I don't know if, uh, you know, you remember this moment, but it was basically peak YA. Um, Twilight had come out a few years prior and suddenly everybody, a lot of adults, especially adult women were reading young adult fiction. And it became this, this thing where, you know, everyone was reading Twilight, everyone was reading The Hunger Games, everyone was looking to YA, um, you know, as even as grownups, because they enjoyed something about these themes. And it, as a result, I mean, this was a moment when basically every movie that was being made in Hollywood was an adaptation of a YA novel. It was just a crazy time. And there was this sense of you could do anything in YA. You know, it didn't really matter. You know, there were no restrictions at that moment. You could be quite dark and quite weird. And um, you could delve into, you know, incredibly adult themes. And as long as your characters were teenagers, it really didn't matter. Um, you know, there, there was very little limitation. There was a sense of enormous possibility then. And I was publishing with a house that specifically became a home for, for YA writers who were doing sort of more literary or more experimental. Um, and when I say experimental, I don't mean like in the style of Taolin. I just mean, you know, they were sort of pushing the boundaries of what a young adult novel could be. Um, Jandy Nelson published with this same imprint, John Green, Nova Rensuma, you know, they published with the same imprint and the same editor. And this was a, a period of a few years, you know, in which YA was dominant and in which editors and publishing houses were willing to take a chance on work that was a little different um, and sort of just try things. You know, there was just a sense that there's a huge audience for it. Let's just throw lots of stuff at them. That started to change around 2014. And so I would say that now, if I were trying to write YA, which I'm not for a variety of reasons, um, I would certainly feel very constrained. But 
that's because the that moment has passed. It has less to do with what it actually means to write for teenagers who, you know, I think are just a wonderful audience. They're passionate. You know, they love to read. They connect deeply with books. Um, in many cases, they connect more deeply with books than adults do. And um, I'm certainly glad to have had that in my past. Um, that said, for, the, for now, right now, um, YA is smaller and the books tend to be focused in a particular direction, or at least the books that are sort of the buzziest. Um, it's, it's not uh, dissimilar from what's happening in the world of literary fiction, which is also a place that I don't operate and never have, um, where there's quite a lot of focus on identity as the lens through which people are creating their work. Um, I would not... I would not want to be trying to to work in that kind of space at this point. I would find that very constrictive. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So you say that you're not part of the world of literary fiction. Um, in um, I've never fully understood this distinction um, because to me, uh, your book reads uh, like a uh, a very literary work. So there are motifs running through. There are um, there are recurrent certain recurrent metaphors. There's a logic to the way in which the book is structured. There's also a lot of kind of implicit uh, social commentary. I mean, there are uh, there are characters who parallel and mirror each other. So I feel what I would consider to be literary fiction is fiction which would reward a. Uh, a more detailed analysis, which it would be fun to write an essay about, for example, and, and an, an essay that wouldn't just be making fun of it, or um, it's not just filled with cliché. And um, uh, what for you is the, dif- is the distinction between literary fiction? Is it simply because there is a murder in there? Yeah, I think that what we've what we've just uh, encountered is a, a difference in in terms of you know me thinking of literary fiction as a community um, rather than oh, as a okay. mode of writing. I oh, you know God a community. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you know you have your literary writers, you know who are the, you know the ones who go to colonies. They're the ones who who go to MFA programs. You know they're all the Iowa Writers Workshop. It's more of a, a social scene. Um, and you know, you have, they, they tend to know each other. They tend to promote each other's work. They tend to hang out together. Um, the, (laughs) the recent kerfuffle, I don't know how closely you've been following this about the bad art friend. Oh yes. And I listened to our podcast on this, but feel free to also comment here, um, (laughs) because I'm completely fascinated by this story. It's remarkable. I feel like I've talked about it so much this week, just in, I mean, in every possible context, my friends and I are pretty obsessed with it. I've also talked about it on a bunch of podcasts. Um, I mean, it's, it's fascinating, but this is a great example of when I talk about literary fiction as a community, that's what I'm talking about is that group of people. Um, you know, there's, I mean, I, I would certainly like to think that my writing qualifies as literary as opposed can, to can I just interject so that just so listeners aren't confused we're talking about the bad art friend um, controversy and um, I will put a link to the New York Times article 
uh, which lays it all out in the show notes and also to your podcast discussing it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, this is, uh, we can, you know, we can talk about that later. Um, it's, a, a amazing. I mean, not just, um, not just for the story itself, but for what it reveals about the dynamics that rule in, in certain kind of close knit spaces where artists tend to congregate. And when I talk about not fitting into that, you know, that arena, um, I think I'm really talking more about how I socially don't fit in there. Um, it's just not really where I, where I work or where I play. Um, but you know, in terms of fiction being, literary i i think that it's true that you know there are these different i guess tiers at which things operate you know and you have your sort of like pulpy mass market um you know more formulaic thrillers um i would put i would put probably mary higgins clark into that category and i say that with affection because i i love her stories even though it always turns out that the husband or the boyfriend is evil um, it's it's amazing how she manages to make that interesting every single time. <laughs> um, but then, you know, you do have, um, I mean, Gone Girl, for instance, was a, a commercially successful genre novel, but it was also literary. Mm, yes. I'm also thinking about novels like My Sister's Keeper instantly um, comes to mind. Who is who is that writer? Jodie Picoult, yeah. Jodie Picoult, yes, exactly. Um, I mean that's quite enjoyable fluff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's uh, running, um, you know, or when you're when you're doing the washing or something else, and you're only listening with half an ear. It's um, excellent for that kind of situation, and it's that sort of search for that kind of that frisson is what I'm always I personally am always looking for when I read. Um, murder mysteries, which is that moment at which the little seemingly otherwise insignificant detail takes on this sinister significance. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, the chapter will end with he glanced down at the mantelpiece and there were three hairpins there, but they were hairpins for blonde hair or something <laughs> like that. You know, um, I'm not giving a very good example. Those are the moments that I kind of live for in those uh, in those books, and I know that um, I know that Jodie Picoult will deliver that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, she's terrific. Well, it's interesting too that this is starting to tread into this question of whether fiction by women for women that that deals in a world sort of populated by women um, or with with issues that are more maybe uh, of interest to women whether this gets discounted as literary purely because we tend to think of feminine things as frivolous and therefore not worth taking seriously. Hmm, I don't know. I mean, um, Austin and the Brontes are the absolute epitome of, of, um, of the canon, mm-hmm. right? And, and nothing could be more feminine. Right. Uh, I mean, there's a kind of... I guess in the 18th and 19th centuries, during the golden age of the novel, there's there are sort of men's novels and women's novels, and the men's novels are mostly more panoramic, um, although not necessarily longer, and take a more um, have multiple sets of characters and locations, etc. And the women's novels tend to be more 
closely focused in on the search for a husband, basically. I mean, many of them have have single uh, first names as titles. Um, and um, they, like Clarissa and Pamela and um, ex- Belinda, etc. And they're basically first names in search of a surname. When the woman gets her surname, that's the end of the novel. But nevertheless, there's so much kind of... Um, there's so much rich social observation in between. And those kinds of novels do have an enormous cachet, at least the older. Um, the, that, that is a, that's a very firm tradition of, of novel writing. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I think also kind of swashbuckling adventure stories can also be considered to be trashy genre fiction, like somebody like Dan Brown or the guy who wrote those Master and Commander novels, those aren't considered high high literature, you know, mm-hmm. even though they're very kind of traditionally quote unquote masculine in their sort of, in, in a kind of genre, in their feeling. Yes. Yeah. That's an interesting thing. I think, you know, this, this idea of women's interests as inherently frivolous, you know, the issues salient to women's lives, you know, if the, if the novel focuses on, the domestic realm, you know, if it focuses heavily on the bedroom, um, that this, this makes it inherently less serious, that that's something that came about in response to the rise of, um, what was it called? Oh, chiclet. Um, this was like this genre that, that became a thing and it wasn't necessarily new, but it was a new way of talking about it, um, in the early two thousands. Yeah. It's a little bit sexist that there isn't a kind of Dicklet. I think that I think that people have tried to make that happen, and it it hasn't worked out for what probably are obvious reasons. I mean, the fact that we can't say the two words without laughing is a good start there. Well, you know, some equivalent kind of um, sort of some 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 equivalent dismissive term for this is the lit for men. But I guess the issue is that men just don't read that much. And don't read that much fiction. Is there anything that has surprised you in, um, I mean, you must have sent out some review copies to people and already seen some reviews and had some responses. Mm-hmm. Are there any responses that have surprised you? Um, there was one, actually. It, it surprised me and it, it made me kind of mad. Um, somebody, somebody posted a review saying, I thought I had guessed the twist on the first page. And so I, and then I skipped to the back of the book to see if I was right. And I was, so I decided not to read it. And I think this person had given the book one star because, you know, they were so good at, um, you know, identifying the, the possible outcome of thrillers that they had managed to guess it. You know, it's like, I don't know. There's something funny to me about a person who is, so insistent on their own cleverness, you know, that they'll, they'll open a book looking to catch the twist from the first page. They'll think they figured it out. They'll go to the end to see if they were right. And then they'll punish the author for this. You know, it's like, you didn't, Mm -hmm. you didn't work hard enough to fool me. Um, You know, the thing is as a thriller writer, this is a, a tension that you experience in trying to construct a story because in order to construct a story that arrives at this twist in a way that is interesting, in a way where the reader can kind of enjoy the anticipation of it, maybe even see it coming from a little ways off, um, but doesn't doesn't see it coming a mile away. Um, 
you know, to do that without cheating, you have to put, I mean, you, you have to construct the book in such a way that somebody who reads a lot of them probably could, you know, if they really went in just with the goal of guessing what happens, that they can figure it out. Um, you know, otherwise you'll, you'd have to engage in a form of authorial subterfuge and attempt to misdirect the reader that's actually not fair to them and that will make every other reader who doesn't read books in that way feel cheated at the end. You know, they'll feel like, well, you know, you, you did something underhanded here that made it, you know, it was misleading in a way that it's not fun. Um, so, but I, I thought it was so funny, you know, that if you read a lot of books like this, I mean, one of the reasons that you read them is uh, presumably for the pleasure of seeing how they're constructed (laughs) and the idea of somebody reading the first page and then going to the last and being like, ah, well, then I'm just not going to bother. Um, that was very, that was surprising, but also very funny to me and a little infuriating, but that's, that's hilarious. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, there is a lot of pleasure in the way that the things are plotted. Um, and that's something which is plot is something that's really undervalued in literary fiction. And it's one reason why, for example, Isabel Allende is not considered a literary writer. And I think that it's um, a lot of literary writers kind of just substitute philosophizing and lavish description for a really, for a well-constructed story. And in fact, it's, it's way easier to gaze at your navel fluff and write kind of lush descriptions than it is to actually construct a good plot. And that's one reason why it's hard to write a good whodunit. Um, and there are a lot of disappointing and not that many really good whodunits. And it's the reason almost nobody has been able to, no one has been able to take on Agatha Christie's mantle. She's still unsurpassed mm-hmm. as a crime, as a whodunit writer, because it's just so much more difficult to, to construct a good plot, to just be a good teller of stories. And I think it's really an undervalued skill. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I feel that writers working today are a little bit at a disadvantage because Agatha Christie came before us. And so people now are, are such savvier readers. You know, they, they know the tricks. And so one of the things about writing thrillers now is trying to find a way to do something new, but without, again, without cheating. Um, that's a huge mm-hmm. challenge. Yeah, because there are two kinds of surprises, right? There's the sort of, ah, I see type of surprise. And there's the what the fuck type of surprise. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And the what the fuck, I mean, it's not, it's not helpful at all. You know? No, and no, nobody enjoys that, you know, and, and people resent authors for putting, you know, for doing that to them. Uh, well, there's one of the Agatha Christie's in which everybody did it. You know, all of the suspects are guilty and they all work together. It was a group affair. Yeah, that's morning um, on, the, on the Orient Express, I think, right? Yes, 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 that's right. Apologies for the spoiler. But in fact, this one deserves a spoiler because it's it's so kind of pointless and disappointing. Oh, um, that's interesting. But I'm sure that at the time, you know, she felt like she was doing something new and different. Well, she was, but there's a reason. There's a reason why certain things aren't done because psychologically they just don't work. You don't want everybody to be guilty, or you don't want to find. Um, I mean, I would have felt if I'd reached the end of your book and and I discovered that 
the, the victim had just committed suicide and everything else was just irrelevant. And uh, she had just been feeling depressed and had shot herself. I would have been extremely annoyed, you know. I mean, and that, that in a sense would have been unexpected, mm-hmm. but it would have been unexpectedly pathetic. So, yeah, <laughs> finding the ah kind of surprise. It's a pleasure that is not just not just surprise, but also surprise at a kind of pleased surprise at, at, at fulfillment of a certain kind of expectation, um, mm-hmm. a, a sort of literary kind of expectation. Like when you get to the end of a piece of music, you're listening to a new piece of music for the first time, you don't know exactly how it will end. But if they really surprise you by just cutting off mid-note in the middle, and there's no kind of coda, then it's then you have that what-the-fuck feeling. And it makes you feel that it's not, it's not meaningful. Yes, that's very interesting. I mean, one of the things too that I've, that I've loved hearing, um, in, and I've heard it a, a few times now, is that people who've read the book will reach the point of of the twist will will understand what's happened and will immediately go back to read the first half of the book because they want to see how you know what they missed what they missed the first time around um and you know that's a, an amazing thing to hear mm. yeah i think i'm um i personally am the uh, I'm the ideal reader for who done it also because I have a very poor memory for plots. And so I am now um, rereading the Agatha Christie's because I read them 30 years ago and I've forgotten what happened in the end in most of them. So I can actually go back and be pleasantly surprised again. Oh, that's wonderful. I really envy you that ability. Um, There (laughs) there are so many books that I would love to feel as though I was reading again for the first time. Well, just wait. And actually, it doesn't happen as much with literary books. They, they do regain a certain pattern of freshness when you've kind of forgotten a lot, a lot, a lot of what goes on. But you still, you always remember the plot. Whereas with whodunits, you specifically forget the plot, which is the most central part. You forget who the murderer was. Wait till you're old. This will happen to you too. <laughs> okay. Something to look forward to. Yes. Forgetting is highly underrated. Do you, um, do you have a kind of postpartum depression now that you've finished the novel? Or are you already thinking about your next project? I'm, I'm quite deep into it, actually, into my next project. Oh, um, but what I'm experiencing right now is, you know, there's quite a lot of anticipation around this book. It's it's one of the, I mean, it's, it's getting the most buzz of anything that I've written solo, um, you know, not, not counting the Stanley collaboration, which obviously was much buzzed about for its own reasons. Uh, but there is at this point quite a lot of anticipation for this book. I'm I'm hoping to see that it does well, but I'm also very aware that if it does well, I'm going to have this bar to clear with my next book. And um, that's giving me a lot of anxiety. So yeah, it's um, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to take a step back from that project now so that I can enjoy the release because I mean this is the thing about being a writer you you write a book and then you sell it and then you wait you wait a year at least for the book to actually come out and so 
um, you know, I, I want to, I want to enjoy this moment without feeling anxious about what I'm not doing or, you know, whether I'm not living up to expectation, but it's, it's a little anticlimactic for sure. Um, you know, when you know what happens in the book, you know, it's, it's been sort of out of your hands for so long and then it's in everyone's hands long after you were basically done with it. Mm, like light from the stars. Yes, very much so. I mean, when I, you know, I, I was just reading, you know, at the start of our conversation, this first chapter, um, that's the first time in quite a while that I've really sort of looked at that piece of writing. You know, it was the first part of this book that I write that, you know, the, the first, that prologue was the opening chapter that, that I started. That was where my idea began. So I wrote that years and years ago, and then, you know, was just revisiting it and thinking, oh, you know, okay, this is not bad. <laughs> there's a there's a kind of um, uh, retro quality to the setting of the book. I think I'm not giving too much away by saying this, that although it's definitely set in the present day, and there's references to Airbnb and things, um, and nevertheless, it has this sort of um, it's set in the kind of village that time forgot. Mm-hmm. It has this very old-fashioned feeling to it. And um, was that deliberate? Or do you think that that kind of came along for the ride with a, with a genre? Or, um, yeah, why did you choose that setting? And, and um, what were you, what do you feel it added? Well, that setting is based on a real place in Maine. Uh, where I've spent a lot of time. And I grew up in a small town that's not dissimilar from this setting. Although, unlike the part of Maine where the book takes place, my hometown now does have relatively reliable cell service. We do have a tower. Um, There are parts of Maine, though, because it's quite remote, because once you get up to the northern part of the state, it's just so completely unpopulated, um, where you can go, you know, just a little bit away uh, from, I mean, there are even in towns, you know, there's just no cell service. Um, And I think that, you know, one of the things about writing a novel um, and particularly writing a thriller at this point in time is you do spend a lot of time trying to construct ways for people to not have access to the internet or to their cell phones because they tend to kind of take all the mystery out of everything. Um, So in this way, having this setting that was remote and, you know, as you say, kind of old school in terms of the way things play out, um, you know, where technology has not transformed the way that the town works or the, you know, the dynamics, the interpersonal dynamics between the people, um, you know, that was useful to me from the point of view of constructing a believable plot. But I'm also just fascinated by towns like this, areas like this, where they are a little bit left behind, um, or where even though everyone has the internet, you know, social media accounts play a certain role in the way that this story plays out. Um, it hasn't really changed the way that people relate to each other. And at a time when, you know, in my, the spheres where I live and work at the moment, the internet really has transformed our social lives and, and, you know, not necessarily for the better. It was interesting to kind of dive back into a world where the old dynamics reign. Also not for the better, 
but in a way that is familiar. Mm. No, definitely not for the better. For the for the kind of neutral, I guess. But if you're going to, if you want part of the tension that you need in a novel is separating people from each other. And if everybody is just on the phone to each other all the time or texting or WhatsApping or whatever, it's very hard to create that atmosphere. You've got to be lost in the forest at some point in your whodunit. Yes. Or maybe not literally, but there's 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 got to be a sense of kind of isolation. There has to either be a technical barrier or a psychological barrier to communicating with anybody else. And you have so you have both in this novel. It's, you know, for the same reason that many protagonists of novels are orphans. Um, traditionally, most novels began with their, their characters were orphans or or they had totally feckless parents or they just turned 21. So they were just at the age of independence and going out into the world. Because if you have people supervising, looking after you, it's very hard to get into trouble and get up to mischief. And you need to get into trouble and get up to mischief if you're going to have a good story. Do you think there's a connection between your fiction writing and your uh, your nonfiction writing? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I see fiction writing as a way to explore a lot of the same questions that interest me as a culture writer, um, just, you know, from a different angle. But what draws me to culture writing is, you know, similar questions, you know, what are we doing to each other? What are, what are human beings up to? Um, you know, what drives us to behave in certain ways and to treat each other in certain ways? So, you know, I, I write a lot about the, sort of the social aspects of our culture. I write a lot about what's happening between men and women right now. And, um, you know, writing fiction is just another way to kind of kick over that rock and explore what's underneath. Yeah. Are there specific themes that th run through your fiction writing or your writing in general or a specific kind of angle on things that you feel is is very much your own? That's my own. Um, gosh, I don't think that I would claim to be original in that way. I, I think that that's, you know, that's something that I a compliment I don't deserve to to give myself. Um, but I think that you can see in this book certainly echoes of, of the things that clearly fascinate me just overall as a person and as a culture writer. Uh, I'm very interested in how women relate to each other, how they relate to the world. I'm interested in how social dynamics um, can empower women who are better at this sort of covert aggression um, that we, we tend to specialize in. You know, men do overt aggression and we do the other thing. It's a lot of manipulation, a lot of cunning. Um, you know, obviously, from the perspective of a thriller writer, that's, that's a very interesting uh, world to kind of dive into. But I also am interested to see how that affects sort of dynamics overall as we, I wouldn't say that the world has become feminized necessarily, but a lot of when, you know, in the sense that so much of our interaction now takes place online, I do think that the social skills that women grow up honing 
are privileged in a lot of the sort of discursive spaces where we now operate. And so that's, you know, that's something that I think about a lot, that I talk about a lot. Um, and, you know, that's a through line in No One Will Miss Her. Um, it's also in a lot of my other, you know, my other fiction work. And it's certainly there in my culture writing. Mm, yeah, I was just thinking about the cunning thing that, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it doesn't have to be, I mean, the killer doesn't have to be a woman, of course. Um, but murderers in novels, of course, have have to, for some reason, exercise their cunning. And they have to have some kind of, or they don't have to, but they, they generally have some kind of twisted, deep uh, motive that's based on a grudge or something like that. And those are things that we associate more with the feminine, um, as opposed to just getting angry with having a kind of fight over football or something and then bonking someone over the head. That's mm -hmm. probably more male typical form of violence, but it doesn't, it doesn't make for a very good story. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, I think the thing with, um, you'd want to talk about a premeditated murder, you know, you'll, I think, find that women are often better at that. Certainly in fiction, they seem to be better at it. Um, and, but, you know, men are better at accidentally killing each other <laughs> just, you know, by, uh, you know, I, I suppose if you have that amount of physical strength that it's easier to accidentally overuse it, which is also an interesting thing to explore. Mm, yeah, yeah. There is a wonderful novel about that's based on a, uh, a football related conflict between two men, a fascinating psychological study which I have now, of course, uh, of course, completely forgotten. It's by Eduardo Sacheri. I have completely forgotten the title, but I will put it into the show notes. Do you, do you actually enjoy writing or do you find it an excruciating process? Oh, no, I love it. Um, yeah, I, I feel most like myself when I'm working through something in text. I'm a much better writer than I am a speaker. That's part of it. Um, so, you know, whatever it is that I'm, that I'm working on, whether I'm deep into a scene or whether I'm sort of trying to think through an issue, um, you know, for, for some kind of cultural analysis, uh, I definitely, I find a lot of joy in that, you know, that feeling of, of clarity and that feeling of one's brain just kind of you know, firing on all cylinders. It's a nice, it's a nice thing. That's not to say that it's always easy. Um, there are a lot of times writing fiction in particular can be like pulling teeth. Um, but when it goes well, it's a wonderful thing. Thank you. Is there anything that you hope that I would ask you that I haven't asked you? Honestly, no. Uh, this has been a, a surprising and wonderful conversation and I appreciate it so much. Thank you very much, uh, Kat. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And likewise. And uh, thank you for listening, everyone. Have a wonderful week. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.